This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and the headlines and recommend you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I'm here today with my colleague To Wen Lee. Hello. And today we're going to try and do something a bit different. We're going to talk about book-to-screen adaptations. Now, book-to-screen adaptations these days are a dime a dozen. Often a book comes out and before the book even hits shelves, it's landed some sort of adaptation deal, whether it's film or TV. We are in the middle of one of the biggest book-to-TV adaptations ever, Game of Thrones, formerly known as A Song of Ice and Fire. And even though that's completely diverged from the books by now, still, some people are not too hot on book-to-screen adaptations. Purists particularly are kind of wary of them. So, Wenli, you might be considered something of a literary purist. So, adaptations, <laughs> no. yay or nay? Well, I'd say yay, actually. You know, the funny thing is, this was actually a, a question I was asked in an interview, in a university admissions interview. And I think the answer I gave was that I think book-to-screen recommendations are good because if it's a good book and the adaptation encourages more people to read that book, why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually okay with it. But some people think that if the translation doesn't really work out, then the book has been introduced to a new generation of people, but in the wrong way. Yeah, but I suppose you should also see the film as an artistic product in its own right. And I think the best adaptations take that original source material and, and they stay true to it, not in not by the letter, but in spirit. I think every adaptation is, in a way, a response to that original text. And the ones that do it creatively tend to be the more memorable adaptations, I think. And those that don't, I think if even one person decides to pick up the book after watching the movie, that's a good thing. So one of the adaptations I'm personally extremely excited about is Good Omens, which Ah. is coming out next month in May. Based on a book by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Pratchett. So this book was published in 1990, making it older than the two of us. (laughs) Uh, And after a very, very long and tortuous journey, it is finally coming to the screen in May, courtesy of BBC and Amazon Studios. Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, two of the biggest cult authors from Britain and in, in the fantasy world, Terry Pratchett is the author of the Discworld series. Neil Gaiman is known for Neverwhere and the Sandman comics. So it was sort of like a dream come true for fantasy fans when they came together and they wrote Good Omens, which is a funny story about the end of the world. Um, Where death <laughs> plays a central role. Yes, yeah, so um, it's a comedy about the apocalypse. There's an angel called Aziraphale and a demon called Crowley. And for millennia, they have lived on Earth together in a kind of enemies with benefits situation. But they are told that the end of the world is going to come and the Antichrist is being born. And they have been both put in charge by their various superiors to sort of facilitate (laughs) this happening. The thing is that neither of them really wants the world to end because they're kind of comfortable And even though they're supposed to be good versus evil, they're not really... There's some grey lines. So Aziraphale works as a book dealer. He lives in this... He has this antiquarian bookshop which he collects antique books and sort of hates people who come in and touch them. And Crowley is this demon who did not so much fall as saunter vaguely downward. So he's always said that it's not that I fell into sin, it's that I was hanging out with the wrong people and then they all fell together. (laughs) And now he uh, sort of... He drives a Bentley that converts everything you put into it into Queen songs which Fantastic. yes Queen is my favourite band so obviously I love this book 
And of course, they kind of bungle the first attempt to look after the Antichrist because they swap the babies wrongly. And the baby who everyone thinks is the Antichrist is not. He's like an ordinary baby. And so for 11 years, they just focus on the wrong baby. But the real Antichrist ends up somewhere in this like nondescript town called Lower Tadfield. Uh, mm. And he grows up this otherwise ordinary child called Adam and uh, hangs out <laughs> with his friends, has a hellhound whom he calls Dog. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it, depending on who the Antichrist chooses, whether it's good or evil, there will be a war then that will end the world. And mm. the horsemen of the apocalypse have been activated to ride, except that because this is the modern day, they are no longer horsemen, they are bikers. And it's an extremely funny book. And many, many attempts have been made to adapt it, but they've all sort of fallen through. The director, Terry Gilliam, director of Brazil, tried actually in the early 2000s, there was a sort of ongoing project, but it fell through. And at one point, Terry Pratchett was so frustrated that it was never going to happen. They all sort of gave up on it. And then, of course, he died of early Alzheimer's disease Mm. in 2015. May he rest in peace and may his soul forever travel on the clacks. And after his death, he uh, Neil Gaiman received a posthumous request from his friend, Sir Terry, to try and adapt it. And he said that he didn't want to, but since Terry had asked, he felt like he had to. And he wrote the script for the good omens that we're going to see. And I'm so both excited, but also terrified. terrified. (laughs) It's going to go badly, but so much is going for it. I mean, they have David Tennant, um, Mm. my favorite Doctor Who, as Crowley. They have Michael Sheen as Aziraphale. They've got this amazing looking cast. All the trailers have Queen songs in them. I'm very excited about Good Omens. And if you have not read this book, you absolutely should. It's about the end of the world. And that's something we all worry about these days, isn't it? Yes. So I was thinking we could travel backwards through time and revisit this film, Cloud Atlas, that came out in 2012. I think it's a film adaptation that worked really well. I mean, for those who don't know, Cloud Atlas is based on David Mitchell's 2004 novel of the same name. And it's about six nested narratives spanning from the South Pacific in the 19th century to this post-apocalyptic future. It was adapted for the screen by the Wachowskis and Tom Tyquer. Yeah, so it had a stellar cast, you know, ranging from Hugh Grant to Hugo Weaving to Tom Hanks and a really haunting soundtrack. I don't know if you've seen it. I have seen it. They they all play different characters. Having the same actor play multiple characters, I think, is a nod to how our paths intersect as time goes by. I mean, not just in a single lifetime, but in future lifetimes and past lifetimes, in the sense of people coming together, the paths crossing over centuries, yeah. So I thought that was done quite well and it was edited really well as well. That was a pretty bold move to have the same person play characters of different races. Yeah, I think some people weren't happy. I mean, there were some critics who weren't very happy about how, you know, some characters put on prosthetics and makeup, heavy makeup, to look like they were of a different race. But I think it's okay and I think it does work in the movie itself. I mean, I I admit I found it very confusing when I saw it for the first time in 2012 because there's so many characters. There are actors who play different characters as well, so it can be a bit hard to keep track of who's who and where they are in the in the story. But when I when I saw it again recently, I I think it moved me in a far more profound way. I guess you have to keep returning to the story time and time again in order to fully appreciate it for what it is. Why don't we talk about the best ever book-to-screen adaptations I've seen? Okay, so for me, this is definitely The Lord of the Rings by oh, J.R. <laughs> I would say the same if you hadn't already bagged it. Bagged it. <laughs> bagged it. <laughs> but yeah. No, this, because it is my favourite book of all time. and um, It's your favourite book of all time? Yes, it is. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. And so, you know, naturally, I was very purist about it when did approaching you read the, the screen. Did, did you read the book first? I read the book first, okay. yeah. So the film came out in the films came out between 2001 and 2003 huge epic project 
And I think that is partly why I admire them so much. I admire Peter Jackson's effort to translate that epicness onto screen in a way that I think has very rarely been done. And everyone sort of tries to live up to that level of epicness. Even today, Game of Thrones, they're saying that the battle scene in The Long Night is meant to top the battle scene in no Helm's way. Deep. <laughs> and uh, for the record, I don't think it does, but good try, Game of Thrones. Mm. Helm's Deep is, to me, the just top-notch in terms of both on screen and on the page. And also, there's so much lore in Tolkien. There's so much backstory. There's, there's a richness to it that can't be beaten. I mean, you, you feel that they're drawing from this old ancient source of myth. It's huge because Tolkien created this entire world. He wrote the Silmarillion to fill out the myths that you know he had used to bolster this world. And there's so much. It's so rich. Even the poetry that if you you know if you were to truly translate all the rings to uh, any form, it would probably be a musical because they're just bursting into poems and singing every other page. Speaking of singing, the soundtrack was brilliant as the well. The soundtrack was brilliant. Everything. And they were so attentive to detail. Even when it came to you know the, the choice of wind instrument that was used, I think before Frodo left the Shire and after he came back from the Shire, I mean there are subtle differences as well, and it's just so carefully thought out. I mean the, the score is wonderful. It gives me goosebumps every time I listen to it. Hey, so one of the things that always gets me is the scene in Helm's Deep right before Theoden King leads his men in the final charge against the orcs and against the Urukai, and he's pretty much sure he's going to die mm. in this charge and so the scene is shot with sunlight coming in from behind him and he's backlit and they're putting the armor on him and he recites this poem he goes where now the horse and the rider where is the horn that was blowing it's uh, a lament for the Rohirrim and it's taken from this Anglo-Saxon poem that um, the Wanderer and because Tolkien owes such a huge debt to I think Anglo-Saxon literature mm. he was a professor he was a professor of Anglo-Saxon he's written some of the what are called foundational criticisms on poems like Beowulf for instance yeah, he translated Gawain and the Green Knight as well yeah so he draws a lot on the Anglo-Saxon canon, particularly for the portrayal of the Rohirrim. And when Theoden King recites this poem, it's just like an arrow straight through the screen and into the book and back into the heart of where Tolkien got his inspiration from. It's incredibly moving and well-performed. And I just, you know, every time I see it, I cry. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I think what Peter Jackson did was great. I mean, he, I feel he stayed true to the spirit of the book, but he also made a lot of good directorial decisions. He made it a lot more cinematic, I guess a bit more relatable to a contemporary audience, fleshing out Arwen's character, for instance. She isn't that yeah. present. In the, I mean, she's present in the book, but she isn't that visible. He um, gives her the role that was meant for Glorfindel in the book. Yeah. And also cutting out the section with Tom Bombadil. How do you feel about that? I think the two most obvious changes were removing Tom Bombadil from the book and also omitting the scouring of the Shire chapter, which yes. is when the hobbits return to Hobbiton and they realise that Saruman has actually you know, infected the Shire as well and they proceed to rid the Shire of, of the evil that has encroached upon its beauty. I am okay with those changes. I know people who are extremely upset about the cutting of Tom Bombadil and have never forgiven Peter Jackson for it. Mm. I'm okay with it because I can see why he did it. It would have been too long if you were to do justice to the Tom Bombadil story. Yeah. And the scarring of the Shire, the same thing. That movie was already... What, it was 200 <laughs> minutes long, yes. the final so part of the trilogy. So if you had you know, done all your ring dropping and king crowning and then you go back to the Shire and you still have another narrative arc to fulfill. I know why Tolkien did it to show that evil is not you know, always grand and it, sometimes it can penetrate like the smallest 
the place where you think you're safest. Yeah, but I, I don't feel it would have worked as well in the film, at least not given the time constraints Jackson was working with. We are okay with this, I think. What about best classic adaptations? You know, literary classics, <laughs> the ones that people are least likely to pick up if they pick up anything. There are a lot of books. Okay, um, there are so many books that I wouldn't have read if not for the fact that I'd seen the film adaptation first and I liked it so much that it made me want to you know, revisit the books. Just to name a few, uh, Middlemarch. Based Middlemarch, on, yes, which I know you don't like. <laughs> I do not like Middlemarch, but I know it's your favourite. So. It's my favourite. Uh, Middlemarch by George Eliot. For those who don't know, George Eliot was actually a woman. She was writing in the 19th century and Middlemarch is a story of um, people who live in this place called Middlemarch and it's, it's, it's very hard to summarise it in a nutshell, but it's just about these people and it's, it's full of these really um, wise depictions of why people behave the way they do. Anyway, the BBC miniseries based on Middlemarch is, is brilliant and it's the reason why I decided to pick the book up. Um, it's a very long book. I mean, I tried reading it in 2012 and I couldn't finish it. I, I tried re- listening to the audio version. I tried you know, reading it really slowly, but no, it didn't It didn't grow on me. So I, I revisited the book in 2016 and I read it in, I think, just two or three sittings. I really liked it. George Eliot is just incredibly wise. And I'm just going to read out a, a line. Actually, this is the last line of Middlemarch, which I find profoundly moving. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. I know a lot of people object to that. I mean, a lot of people say that, you know, you shouldn't resign yourself to the idea that you might live an unhistoric life or rest in unvisited tombs, but I find that oddly comforting. That's a life choice now, if you want. It's a life choice, but I guess one assumes that if you're young and starting out in life, you shouldn't be so resigned to the fact that your life might not go the way you want it to. But anyway... Aside from Middlemarch, there is Fright and Prejudice, um, oh, the, BBC, the BBC miniseries. I, okay. I utterly despise the Kira Knightley version. Why do you despise the Kira Knightley version? <laughs> no, I feel it's out of step with its time. I mean, if you if you look at the BBC miniseries, which was filmed in 1990, which, which was released in 1995, it's just brilliant. I mean, it's so true to the book. And I think what we see in the BBC miniseries, which is absent from the 2005 movie, is a sense of restrained passion. I feel that that quality of restraint is what I really like about Austen's writing and, and what I really like about Pride and Prejudice, the miniseries, the sense of old-fashioned courtship. I can almost memorise lines from, from the BBC miniseries. Colin Firth is perfect Mr. Darcy and <laughs> Jennifer Ely is the perfect Elizabeth. You know, when he goes into this room and he confesses his feelings to her, I mean, Mr. Darcy is this rich, arrogant man who pushes all of Elizabeth's wrong buttons. I mean, she's from a respectable family, but she's obviously not as well off as he is. And yeah, I mean, she hates him from the start and he finds himself falling for her even though he doesn't because he finds that her family isn't of, you know, sufficiently good standing and so on. But eventually he gives into his passion and he tries to confess his love for her in, the, in the, probably the worst possible way imaginable. This is a TV series that converted you know, generations and generations of Austenites. Everyone who adapts a book longs for this kind of reaction. Yes, it's a perfect adaptation and anyone who hasn't seen it should. There are some of the books which I wouldn't have picked up if not for the film adaptation. I mean, there was Revolutionary Road, written by Richard Yates and directed by Kate Winslet's now ex-husband, Sam Mendes. I like to see Revolutionary Road. I mean, it's set in suburban America, I think in the 50s or 60s, and it's about this couple who are kind of resigned to suburban mediocrity. And um, it stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, so I like to think that's what would have happened to them if Leo had survived the Titanic. <laughs> if there had been room Just, on the door. It's <laughs> a dysfunctional marital life for you, but it's, it's a brilliant book. It's one of my favourite books. 
I wonder what that says about me. But anyway, yes. Um, but what about when it goes wrong? Many bad experiences. So many, so many film adaptations. <laughs> I can't stand The Hobbit, for instance. Can't stand The Hobbit. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I feel quite bad about it because I know he was um, trying to deliver a film, uh, deliver a series of, of films on tight deadline. In, in interviews, he was talking about how it felt like laying the train tracks as the train was approaching was that bad. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, so the, the other one is Murder on the Orient Express, the recent Kenneth Oh, Bernard. I thought it was okay. No, I loved it. No, 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 I, I didn't have high expectations to start with. Okay, I had high <laughs> it's expectations. It's very Kenneth Branagh. It's one of my favourite Agatha Christie books. Mm-hmm. And when Kenneth Branagh casts himself in but the But that's lead a very role, Kenneth Branagh thing to yes, do. Yes, and I don't like it when he does it because he his Poirot was simply over the top and some sort of dashing like caricature of action himself. hero with guns shooting. That's not, you know, it's not about the it's all about the little grey cells. Yeah, I know, but it's not, it's not a very serene film. I saw it as, you know, a kind of animated version of a Bond game. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's like Cluedo animated. But oh, by far, the worst, the worst adaptation I've ever seen, I think, is World War Z. What's that about? Ah, so World War Z, or World War Z, depending on where you are in the world, is one of my favourite books about zombies. I see. So it imagines the world if a zombie outbreak occurred. And it's sort of like a documentary. It's collected like a documentary of, you know, various oral interviews from people around the world as to what happens when the zombie outbreak hits them. It's actually very intelligent. It's very social economic. So say, for instance, in China, how would the government try to hush up a zombie outbreak mm-hmm. to make it look to the rest of the world like they didn't, you know, if nothing was going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's very into zombies. And yeah. but with that as your premise, I mean, it's very, I can see how it would go wrong. Yes, so what the where it went wrong was that they allowed it to be taken over by Brad Pitt. Oh dear. <laughs> and the movie then became a vehicle for Brad Pitt saves the world from zombies. Mm. So it's so in the movie it became about this one guy played by Brad Pitt who single-handedly saves the world from zombies which doesn't happen in the book. In the book they spend years and years working out how to, you know, deal with this zombie outbreak in mm. different countries, different cultures, you know, how they react to it. And in the movie it's just this one white guy from America yeah. who is single-handedly solves everything. Also the zombies do not behave like they should. They behave less like bodies and more like CGI lava flows. You know, there's that's terrible. There's one scene where they just sort of like flood over the walls of walls of Israel, and it's you know, <laughs> that's not that is not how zombies work. I'm very. Uh, did you walk out? Do you see them? You didn't see in the cinema, did you? I did see in the cinema. And I was horrified because they said later there was going to be a sequel. And I was like, what? Another one? Oh, no. Surely not. So it's Brad Pitt, so... So that's one of the ones that I wanted to reassure people. <laughs> it's really not like the book. Read so the book they shouldn't instead. see it. Yeah, so they shouldn't see it. They, they should read the book it. instead. I think I'm very much looking forward to His Dark Materials, mm. the TV adaptation of Philip Pullman's fantasy trilogy. James McAvoy is playing Lord Asriel in it. He's mm. playing the heroine's amoral explorer father. And Lynn manuel Miranda is playing my favourite character and a Texan aeronaut. <laughs> I, I understand that um, Lynn manuel Miranda is not Texan, but I don't care. Yeah, he can do anything. <laughs> yeah, he can do anything. Oh, and Sunny Liu's The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chan oh, is yeah. a Apparently becoming an animated film, and I'm really keen to see how they do that. It's a lot of detail mm. to get right, especially because of the way that Sunny Liu draws. He draws so many different styles. He draws right. in different styles, and that is his uh, sort of calling card, so to speak. Mm. And I want to see how they're going to reflect that yeah. in animation, also to convey the history of Singapore. Could be really good. Be fascinating. 
screen adaptations of books. Love them, hate them. They're clearly here to stay. We just hope that you'll pick up the book first, <laughs> or pick up the book after, or after either yeah. one. Just pick up the book. Just pick up the book. So I think that's all we have for today. Once again, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Olivia Ho, and I'm To Wen Li, and we hope you have a great time. And see you next time. That was an SPH podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and streaming on Google Home. Do send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at straightstimes.com and bt.sg.